Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 158 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of the Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart is going to discuss the text for the 12th Sunday after Pentecost. We hope you enjoy listening in on these observations on these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. Uh, We're supposed to be here with Alistair Roberts. Uh, Alistair is on his way to Birmingham. Uh, He's going to be here for our Trinity term class, which will come up next week, but he got uh, stopped in Boston. He got as far as Boston and his flight was canceled, and we're waiting to hear updates. Uh, we're expecting him to be here later today, and he'll be here live for the next couple of podcasts we trust. And uh, for this, uh, the the text for this week, this is uh, for the twelfth Sunday after Pentecost in uh, twenty eighteen. That's August twelfth, and the readings for this week are First Kings nineteen verses one through eight, Ephesians four seventeen through chapter five verse two. And then John 6, verses 35 to 51. We'll start with the Old Testament reading, which is a part of the Elijah narrative. The Elijah narrative begins in 1 Kings 17, and it's an, an abrupt beginning. Your listeners will probably know something about the structure of Kings. Kings is set up in a series of what one commentator calls files that have pretty stereotyped beginning and ending. Each reign of a king begins with a statement about who the king was, who his father was, how long he reigned, maybe something about his mother. And then it ends with a statement about his faithfulness or lack of faithfulness and repeats some of the information at the beginning. And those that that uh, introduction and conclusion frame most of the reigns of the kings in the Book of Kings. The one uh, glaring exception to that is Athaliah, who, whose reign neither begins nor ends, and that's a subtle way for the writer of Kings to indicate that she's not uh, her reign is not a legitimate reign. She's the one non-Davidic uh, r- ruler who rules in Judah during this period. So that's the setup that you've had for the first sixteen chapters or so of Kings, and then suddenly in chapter seventeen, Elijah bursts on the scene with without introduction. He's said to be among the settlers of Gilead, or he's at Tishbe. He's uh, in Tishbe and Gilead. Uh, nobody quite knows what that means. Uh, but he he uh, runs perp- perpendicular to the, to the history that's been recorded pri- previously. You have this very regularized style, especially with those uh, stereotype beginnings and endings to each reign. Uh, but then uh, Elijah... Uh, in the grip of the spirit comes and uh, bursts across the scene, comes out of nowhere and um, is an interruption of the, the reigns of the kings, particularly the kings of Israel we're looking at in this part of Kings. And so that that's a couple chapters earlier than our reading, but that's when Elijah first appears and he uh, initially uh, pronounces a curse of drought on Israel. He goes to Zarephath and he's cared for by a widow. The Lord miraculously provides for him. And that leads up to chapter 18, this great confrontation between the uh, prophets of Baal and Elijah on Mount Carmel. And Elijah wins that competition, and the people of 
Israel are so impressed with the Lord's power and the Lord's response to Elijah that they uh, follow Elijah's order and slaughter all the all the uh, priests and prophets of Baal. Uh, and it looks like there's this renewed covenant. Rain comes, the land is reborn, and everything looks to be on the uh, on the upswing for Israel. But then chapter 19 begins, and everything kind of collapses. Uh, verse uh, chapter 19 begins with Ahab telling Jezebel what Elijah had done. Ahab has been the dominant character in chapter 18. Elijah confronted him directly. Elijah challenged his prophets to come to Mount Carmel. Jezebel has been in the background. But now that once Jezebel hears about what Elijah has done to her prophets, uh, then she lets um, Elijah know that uh, his life is in danger. She threatens him. Um, May the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of them by tomorrow about this time, verse 2 says. Um, and Elijah's Elijah's response to that threat is often misconstrued. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis has a very good discussion of this in his commentary on First Kings, and he argues that what's happening here is not Elijah becoming fearful and fleeing from the land. Instead, uh, Davis argues that what uh, what's happening is Elijah recognizes that the the apparent repentance of Israel has not really taken hold, that um, the proclamation of the Lord's name after the, the contest at Carmel hasn't really, uh, isn't really a sign of genuine repentance on the part of Israel. Uh, also, he recognizes that getting Ahab to um, turn around slightly doesn't do anything unless you get Jezebel. Jezebel's definitely not turned. She's not repented. And so, the the actual wording of verse 3 in my New American Standard, it says that Elijah was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Uh, that's not really a good translation. Verse 3 in, my, in the margin, it says, um, the Hebrew text may read, he saw and arose, uh, which is different. He's, he sees what's going on and he leaves the land. That's different from uh, being afraid and leaving the land. And I think the the proper interpretation he is seeing, and this is as often in the Bible, the seeing is an act of judgment, an act of discernment. Elijah now sees the conditions of things. He sees the real power on the throne is Jezebel. He sees the real condition of Israel. And so he discerns that and he not runs, but the word is simply uh, go or walk. It's halak, the normal word for go and walk. So he, he discerns what's happening and he leaves the land. He goes to Beersheba, which is down uh, at the southern border of Judah. He's been in the northern kingdom, and he's now going all the way to the southern border of the southern kingdom. And he's on his way out of the land. Um, but it's not out of fear, and it's not uh, he's not fleeing. Uh, he's, has a, uh, he's got a destination, as we find in the rest of the chapter. He's going to Mount Horeb. We don't find that until in verse 8. And then the incident is that at Mount Horeb is not part of the text. But I think that's that's the way to read the passage. It's not that Elijah becomes afraid of Jezebel. He's afraid for his life, but rather that he discerns what's happening and he leaves the land. That is a judgment against Israel um, because he's the instrument of the word of God. And if he's taking, if he's leaving, then he's taking the word of God with him. So he's leaving the land and he's going to Mount Horeb where he will meet with God and he will present a case against Israel before the Lord. Uh, that's a prophetic task to bring this case against Israel. It's not a pleasant prophetic task. Uh, it's a, the kind of prophetic task that Jonah has to perform. 
he's told to go and preach to Nineveh, which is the Syrian, Assyrian capital, but he can see the import of that. He can see why the Lord would send him to the Gentiles. He knows the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32, and he knows that when the Lord is provoked to jealousy, that he provokes Israel to jealousy by sending his prophets to another nation. Then Jonah sees that what he's, he's going to become a means for uh, the repentance of Nineveh, the strengthening of the Assyrian Empire, and therefore he's going to be a means to ultimately threaten the northern kingdom, which is what in fact happens. If uh, if a, if Nineveh had been destroyed when Jonah, and during Jonah's time, then Nineveh, the Assyrians, would never have taken over Samaria, never have taken over the northern kingdom. Uh, it's Jonah's preaching that keeps the Assyrian Empire alive, <laughs> uh, and he sees he sees the import of that, and so he's reluctant to go. Uh, he goes the other direction, uh, and what ultimately happens ultimately happens is what he feared that the Lord is merciful to Nineveh, but that means that the Lord is going to use Nineveh, as Isaiah says, as an axe to cut at the cut at the uh, tree of uh, Judah and Israel, and so uh, Elijah sees something similar. He sees what's happening in in uh, Israel, he sees that Jezebel is the real power, uh, and he goes to Horeb uh, in order to present a case before the Lord. He is frustrated. He does believe he's a failure. It's enough, Lord, take my life. I'm not better than my father's, verse 4 says. I think that's fathers should be understood as uh, not as ancestors, but as uh, prophetic fathers. I'm no better than the prophets who came before me. My ministry has been no more effective than theirs. Uh, and he's he'd, he'd rather die than go through with this mission that he has, which is to present the prosecution before the Lord, uh, the prosecution of his own people. Uh, just to I'll make, I want to make a comment about the the little scene in the end of our passage, which in verses six and six through eight, but just to carry on through the, the rest of the chapter that uh, isn't part of our reading. When Elijah goes to Horeb, he presents his case. I've been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, killed thy prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. And then he repeats that again in verse 14. And uh, the Lord does correct him about him being alone. The Lord tells him that there are 7,000 who have not, not kissed Baal, who have not uh, bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, but the Lord, the Lord takes uh, Elijah's prosecution. He takes his, he takes his uh, testimony as accurate testimony. That is, Elisha is not wrong to say that he's been zealous. He's not wrong to say that the sons of Israel have forsaken the covenant, torn down altars, killed prophets. That's all true. And the Lord's response to that is to give this uh, uh, series of pronouncements about uh, the future of Israel. But there's going to be judgment coming from Aram. Elisha is going to be raised up as a prophet uh, who will judge Israel. Jehu is going to be raised up as a, an avenger against the house of Ahab. In other words, when Elijah presents this before the Lord, the Lord agrees with him, and the Lord agrees that Israel needs to be disciplined, and so the Lord arranges for this discipline to happen. So if if Elijah is just being, if Elijah is just whining and complaining as he's often understood to be, that doesn't make any sense. That the Lord would accept it and agree with him, but the Lord accepts his testimony, and the Lord hears the word of the prophet, and the Lord acts on the basis of the prophet's testimony. So that's uh, uh, overall. I think that's what's happening in the chapter. It's not. Uh, this is not Elijah losing it. Uh, this is Elijah having to do a prophetic task that is painful and distasteful to him because he knows it involves uh, 
uh, destruction for his people. Along the way, he stops under the juniper tree in verse 5, uh, and he falls asleep. An angel touches him, gives him food. He goes, uh, lies down again. angel touches him a second time and gives him food again so he can go on with his journey. There's a kind of quasi-Eucharistic moment here. There's obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but this is a kind of death and resurrection. He says, I, I would like to die. And then he lies down uh, on the ground, sleeping under a tree, and he's touched by an angel and comes back to life. And then he's given food. Uh, and in the strength of that food, he goes to Mount Horeb and continues his prophetic ministry. Again, part of the prophetic ministry is to present the case against Israel before the Lord. Prophets present the case in favor of Israel at times. They intercede for Israel. Prophets deliver the Lord's words to the people. But prophets also present the case against Israel before the Lord, and that's what he's doing. And he carries on in the strength of that uh, food in order to carry out this prophetic ministry. This is kind of death and resurrection that precedes his uh, a prophetic task. That death and resurrection is, is involved with the food that the angel provides him. Uh, in the second case, it's the angel of the Lord who provides this food. This is a, a common trope in the prophets. Uh, Isaiah, when Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne um, in his commissioning, he says, woe is me. It's the climax of a series of woes. Uh, Isaiah pronounces woes against the people. Woe, woe. I don't remember how many there are. Six or seven, maybe eight, nine. But then the last one, the seventh or the tenth or something, is uh, Isaiah's own woe against himself. Woe is me, and he's including himself in that. Uh, in that, uh, he he he's including himself among the people who deserve punishment. Uh, but then he's purged. The angel takes the coal and puts it on his lips. He's purged, and then he begins to speak. So there's this um, kind of destruction and renewal this death and resurrection that's part of the prophetic calling. Uh, the beginning of, uh, beginning of Revelation, John sees Jesus in his glory, falls on his face as a dead man, he says. Then Jesus touches him, raises him from the ground, and gives him words to speak. So prophecy is always post-mortem. A prophecy always is uh, comes after the, of a, a death and resurrection experience. That's what's happening with Elijah here. Uh, in this case, he's, uh, the prophetic task that he's uh, – carrying out is this, again, unusual one, kind of the left hand of prophecy, if you want to use that language, the dark side of prophecy, which is to prosecute the people of God. I haven't been able to see a, a lot of connection among the texts for this week, but one thing that we could pick up on and link is the that little section in 1 Kings 19 with the food that's given to Elijah that sustains him uh, and the discussion of food in the wilderness in John 6. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at John 6 um, in our podcast. And John 6 is part of a sequence of events that's replicating the uh, the Exodus, Passover Exodus, and the wilderness feedings. And we are coming toward the climax of that in uh, the reading for this week, which begins in verse 35. Jesus announces, I am the bread of life. Uh, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus provides bread and he provides uh, water implicitly. This is, one, of course, one of the I am statements in John's gospel. That is a deliberate play off of uh, the uh, revelation of the Lord's name back in Exodus. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. 
series of I am statements are uh, I, Jesus is identifying himself with the Lord who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And those are, I think, also uh, different ways of explicating what it means for the Lord to be the I am. What is What does the name Yahweh mean? I think uh, Jesus' I am statements would be one avenue for exploring that. What does it mean for Yahweh to be I am for Israel, to be Yahweh for Israel? Um, it means that he is their good shepherd who will lead them into uh, besides still waters and to green pastures. To say that he's Yahweh is to say that he gives himself for their life. He's the bread of life to them. Uh, it's to say that he's the resurrection of the life. You can kind of run the, the name of Yahweh through those different I am, I am statements in uh, in John's gospel and kind of ex, ex, explicate what um, what uh, the Lord's name means to Israel. In a kind of summary statement, you could say, when the Lord says, I am, I am who I am, he's telling Moses that he is for Israel all that Israel needs. He will be for Israel all that Israel uh, needs him to be. He will do for Israel all that need, Israel needs him to do. Uh, he's going to keep his promise uh, that he made to the fathers in delivering Israel from Egypt. Uh, that's all bound together in the in the name of uh, uh, in the name of God that Jesus again is identifying himself with. As often in John's Gospel, this uh, turns into a discourse that uh, about the relationship of the Father and the Son. Jesus is the bread of life, um, but he uh, is the bread of life because he comes from the Father, uh, because he comes from the Father to do the will of the Father, the will of, of him who sent me, Jesus says. Uh, he comes with the authority of the Father, uh, the authority to give life, as he says in John 5, the authority to judge, the authority to uh, to grant eternal life, and the authority to judge are the two uh, the two grants uh, that uh, the Lord, that the Father gives to the Son, according to John five, and Jesus uh, goes back to that theme here, uh, talking about Himself as the uh, bread of life, who, who comes to give life uh, to His people. Uh, one of the signs that we're in, we're replicating the wilderness wanderings, is the emphasis on grumbling. In verse forty-one, the Jews were grumbling about Jesus. Who is this guy that says, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven? Jesus rebukes them and says, don't grumble among yourselves. Uh, I've come from the Father. And I, no one can speak of the Father except the one who comes from the Father. Uh, this, uh, their grumbling also brings up one of the recurring themes of John's gospel. I think that we've uh, alluded to this in past podcasts, but uh, early on in John's gospel, Jesus is talking about the Spirit and those who are born of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's come from, where it's, where it's going. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, Jesus says. So that is a description of the Spirit. Uh, you don't know the source of the Spirit. You don't know where he's, where he's moving things. There's that mysterious quality to the work of the Spirit. But Jesus, uh, Jesus says this is also characteristic of the one who is born of the Spirit. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is the one who is born of the Spirit. Uh, and so there's a constant refrain about uh, where, what are Jesus' origins? Where did he come from? There's confusion about his birthplace. And then later on in the gospel, Jesus is going to say, I'm going away. You know where I'm going. The apostles say, we don't know where you're going. Uh, he's the one who's born of the Spirit. And so he's elusive, mysterious, 
his origins are mysterious, his destination is mysterious. And that comes up again here when the Jews grumble, they say, isn't this Jesus? We know where he comes from. How can he say he came down from heaven? But he, being one born of the Spirit, he uh, has this mysterious origin in the Father, an origin that the Jews don't grasp. Uh, Jesus, of course, uh, is comparing himself to the man in the wilderness. Uh, he's the bread of life. He is the bread that comes from heaven. But he's uh, explaining that he's superior to the bread that was given in the wilderness because whoever eats from him, from the bread that he is, lives forever. He doesn't give just the temporary life in order to get the fathers to the land, but he gives eternal life. Uh, and of course, the twist is that he gives him, gives himself, and at the end of the passage for this week, he identifies himself as the bread because he's the one who gives his flesh for the life of the world. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give him for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus is giving his own himself for the life of the world. He is giving himself as bread and food. And that just leads into a further debate with the Jews. They have they respond with horror. How can this man give us his flesh and blood uh, as our food and drink? Uh, and Jesus, Jesus goes into that uh, further discussion of flesh and blood. Uh, obviously, sacrificial terms and would refer in some at some level to the cross. Jesus giving him, giving his flesh for the life of the world at the cross. But I think John writing to Christians in the early church, I think is uh, what he says about Jesus' flesh is going to be read as uh, a Eucharistic statement that Jesus gives himself, it gives his flesh and blood on the cross. In that sense, he's the bread of life, who's giving life to the world. But that is that the effect of the cross is carried out and applied through time in the Eucharist. That's that's been a debated point for many many centuries whether this is actually a Eucharistic passage, and you have. Uh, Writers like Augustine who claimed that it is talking about faith and not talking about Eucharist directly. Uh, I think it's talking about both together, uh, believing in the one who gives himself on the cross and also receiving his body and blood at the Lord's table. The last reading for this week is from Ephesians. We've been looking at Ephesians over the last several weeks, and uh, we're into the end of Ephesians 4, beginning of Ephesians 5, just to remind remind you of the sequence of the book, um, at least going back to chapter 2, Paul says, uh, announces the promise and the reality of new life in Christ. Those who were dead in trespasses and sins have now become alive in Christ. Not just individuals have become alive in Christ, but humanity has come to new life in Christ because Jesus has demolished the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Paul describes his own ministry as a stewardship of the mystery. He's a, a an administrator of the mystery, which he identifies as the mystery of this new people, the new people where Jews and Gentiles are uh, bound together on equal footing. And then in chapter four, Paul is largely giving exhortations, uh, specific practical exhortations based on what he said earlier about the, the kind of community the church is and the kind of, kind of people Christians are. Christians are those who've been made alive with Christ from the dead. The church is that new humanity. How should we then live? Uh, that's what uh, chapters four and five are about. Uh, and at the beginning of chapter four, as we saw last time, uh, Jesus, uh, Paul rather, is emphasizing the unity of the church and the virtues of unity. Beginning in uh, verse 17 and through, uh, uh, at least through the beginning of chapter five, uh, we have this um, 
mortification, vivification pattern, um, as the uh, Puritans called it. Um, this pattern of putting things to death and then uh, putting on new life. There's a uh, it's not just a renunciation of certain ways of life, but it's a renunciation of certain ways of life in order to carry out certain new ways of life. So there's this there's these uh, pairs. You're putting off lies so that you can speak the truth. You're putting off anger implied so that you can be reconciled. Uh, you're putting off stealing, not just to refrain from stealing, but so that you can labor and therefore have access to give. So instead of taking your giving, there's this reversal at each point. And ultimately, the, the great reversal is you're putting off the ways of Adam, the ways of the flesh, and you're putting on Christ and walking in, uh, in the new Adam. So this is um, these are the imperatives that follow from the indicatives that Paul has um, Paul has given earlier in the in the book. Paul emphasizes, uh, among other things, he emphasizes the importance of speech. Verse twenty five talks about um, speaking truth. Each of you with his neighbor, we are members of one another. You lay us, lay aside falsehood. Stop lying, but don't just stop lying and and say nothing. But stop lying and speak the truth. Speak the truth with the recognition that you're members of each other, and speaking the truth is a way of building one another up in the body. And he returns to the issue of speech in verse 29. Let no unwholesome, the, the word there means rotten. Words are fruit. Words are uh, food. Uh, let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is, is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So our words should be nourishing and uh, refreshing. That doesn't mean that they're soft. Sometimes a hard word is what needs to be said. Sometimes a hard word is the wholesome word. Um, but it does mean that what comes from our mouths should be edifying and food for the people who are listening, should uh, build them up and nourish them rather than tear them down. Another One other uh, uh, thing I wanted to highlight is the stress he places on anger and wrath or putting off anger and wrath. Uh, verse 26, 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He returns to that at the end of chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This is a text that uh, marriage counselors often return to. <laughs> um, it's a text that has a sobering implications for personal relationships, especially intimate ones like uh, the ones you have in families and marriages. Uh, I don't think Paul is being uh, hyperbolic or he's not exaggerating the danger. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger, or you will give the devil an opportunity. You give the devil an opening by harboring anger. The, the devil is the uh, Satan as slanderer. That's what the word dev devil means. Uh, the word Satan means accuser. Uh, if you don't deal with your anger, if you don't um, deal with it on a daily basis, a regular basis, then you genuinely are giving room for slander and accusation to take over a marriage or a friendship. Uh, that, that's related to what he says about speaking truth, each one with his neighbor. You're speaking truth, being forthright, uh, not, uh, letting, not, uh, not letting your anger simmer, because if you do, then the devil gets into the middle of those relationships. Uh, the, the beginning of chapter 5 puts us all in a context of being imitators of God. You're children of God, and therefore you should be imitators of God, who is a God of truth, uh, a God who is 
uh, slow to anger, a God who doesn't take but gives, a God who speaks wholesome, edifying, nourishing words to his people, a God who's kind and tenderhearted, forgiving. Uh, all those things are true of God, and as his children, we should cultivate those virtues. More specifically, we are imitators of God as, he re- as he's revealed himself in Christ. Uh, be imitators of God, walk in love as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So the specific way we imitate God is by imitating Christ, who is the revelation of God. And we imitate Christ by offering ourselves as sacrifices for one another, just as he has offered himself for us. These are practical, moral exhortations. That's, that's true. But Paul puts all of it into this theological context. They're all different aspects of what it means to be an imitator of God, what it means to be a child of God, uh, what it means to be a human being who's been brought out of death into new life, what it means to be part of the family of God that is the church. These are the virtues that uh, should be cultivated. These are the vices that need to be resisted and killed. And these are the virtues that need to be cultivated for the church to flourish and be the new humanity. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm